All right, we are back in the book of Acts. And as you'll see, we're in Acts 7.54. That's where uh, Jeff left off last week. And I want to put a picture of something up on the screen that uh, may be familiar to you, not certain. How many of you have one of these hanging around your neck? Or maybe on a bracelet, maybe a tat on your shoulder, (laughs) right? So, I mean, the cross, it's very familiar. We see the cross and we immediately associate it with Christianity, and we should. The interesting thing about the cross is, I think what we generally do is we see that and we think life, and we should. The cross is the place where your life and mine, eternal life, was secured by Christ. But the reality is that symbol is an instrument of death. That's what it means. When you see a cross, you should see death because that's what happened there. Our ordinances, we just celebrated baptism. The picture is death, (laughs) burial, and then resurrection. But the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, the broken body of Christ, the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sin, it's pointing to the cross. It's pointing to death. And that has always been a very essential, significant part of the gospel. In Luke 9, here's what Jesus said to his disciples, and he wasn't trying to raise up a fan club. He was trying to find followers. And here's what he said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and do what? Yeah. Take up his cross daily, not just one time, not just 10 years ago, daily, and follow me. That means you're not just doing what you want, you're going where he leads. And then he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, what is the greatest obstacle to us doing that? It's one of my favorite commercials right now. I'm sure you'll be able to help me out with it. BK, have it your way. Yeah. Good job, guys. Yeah, you rule. You can have it your way. You can do what you want. You're the God of your life. That's the greatest obstacle to taking up your cross and following him. It's my greatest obstacle. That's why we have to do it daily. Again and again and again. Jesus said as well, Luke 14, whoever does not 
bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus did not have a category for entrusting our lives to him without following him to a place of self-denial, death to self. Throughout church history, bearing one's cross hasn't just been about self-denial in the general sense, but in many cases, bearing one's cross literally meant the ultimate expression of self-denial, laying down your life for what you believed. That's what we're gonna see today, but just so you know, see, in, in the U.S., I get like self-denial is a real thing for us, but I'm not aware of many people here that wake up every day and wonder, is today my last day here? Because somebody else is gonna take my life. And for no other reason, I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't harm anybody, I didn't break the law, I'm just a Christ follower. See, we think if you're a Christ follower, people ought to cheer for you. They ought to applaud that. I mean, that's a, that's a noble thing. But in other places, that's a great reason to run you through. Just last year, according to Christianity Today, more than 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith. 5,600. 2,100 churches were attacked or closed somewhere in the world. More than 124,000 Christians were forcibly displaced from their homes and 15,000 of them became refugees, homeless. Overall, 360 million Christians, that's the size of our country's population, live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. The organization International Christian Concern says the top three nations that, that would apply to this are Nigeria, North Korea, and India. So one in seven Christians worldwide live in hostile countries toward Christianity, which means they could lose their life. Trusting in Christ does not guarantee earthly well-being. And that should be a part of our explanation of Christianity. See, we don't need to soft pedal it. We don't need to sweeten the deal. It's costly, but there is no better way to live than to follow Christ. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I think in there we find the reason the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to include this in the book of Acts. You gotta wonder, why this story? There could have been a 100 stories that he could have told. Why talk about Stephen being stoned? I think it's a preparation for persecution. There's something about watching somebody else stand up for their faith, even at the cost of their life, that inspires faithfulness in me. 
I think that's why Luke put it in here. Jesus prepared his men for what was ahead. John 16, this is right after he was teaching them about the hatred of the world. Here's what he says. I have said all these things. I've told you the truth about how the world's gonna treat you to keep you from falling away. He knew that they could lose heart. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now jump into Acts 7.54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. They are blind with rage. Who is they? We learned in Acts 6 that there were some who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, some of the Cyrenians, some of the Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, elders, scribes, the Sanhedrin council, all together, Stephen is standing before these groups of people. And Luke says, when they heard these things, what were these things? It's actually the end of the segment right before this, Acts 7, 51 through 53. And I can see how this would be a little upsetting. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They were enraged when they heard those words. Now that's interesting Compared to back, you remember back in Acts 2, I think it was Peter was his first sermon and the response there was they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were convicted and wanted to know how to address their situation. This crowd is enraged. That literally means to be violently emotional as if cut in half by a saw. They ground their teeth at him. It made me wonder, what makes you mad? What makes me mad? I'll tell you what, I make me mad. And I think you make you mad. I think it's the things that we love so desperately that when they are threatened, mishandled, whatever, all that kind of stuff, we feel the need to defend, to protect. We get mad. And that becomes our passionate response. 
So maybe the question they could have asked, should have asked, maybe it's good for us as well, is what do I love that I now feel compelled to defend? And then second question is, should I love that, whatever it is, the way I do? Meanwhile, Stephen is being physically detained, put on trial in front of all these religious leaders. And he's occupied with something else and maybe better occupied by someone else. Look at verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. An interesting contrast here. Stephen is full of, which means controlled by or directed by the Holy Spirit. The crowd of religious leaders are full of themselves. That's why they're responding the way they are. Stephen is gazing into glory. Look, he, he sees the glory of God and the description there is God, his attributes and his presence. I'm simplifying there, but it, it probably means far more than that. But think of words like light and power, beauty, magnificence. Splendor, honor. Somehow that all is encapsulated in that vision of glory. And Jesus is standing right there next to the Father. And that's actually the greatest problem of all here. Um, Jesus is usually described as seated next to the Father. Here he is standing, the fact that he is where he is in relation to the father would suggest that he is equal to the father. And that's the problem because that jeopardizes these Jewish leaders idea of the uniqueness and the singularity of God. They don't have a place for a second standing next to the father. And yet there he is. And then the fact that he's standing can suggest a few things. It could be an expression of judgment. He stands to judge the situation that's, that's going on with Stephen. It can suggest advocacy, like Jesus is standing, advocating on behalf of Stephen before the Father, just as he will do with you and with me. Or reception. He is receiving Stephen, letting him know you're on your way into my presence. Stephen's statement about what he sees sounds very much like Jesus' words in Mark 14, 62, while he was in trial, basically said, you're gonna see the son of man seated at the right hand of God, and they lost it just like these guys did. Probably many of them are the same guys. 
That reference to the son of man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. That's how he referred to himself over and over again. And he was echoing Daniel 7. So this Daniel's vision of heaven in Daniel 7, 13 through 14, listen to what he says here. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. It's interesting. Old Testament, Daniel 7. He sees two next to one another. You would have thought that these religious leaders, like they would have heard these references that Stephen is making, which echoed the the references that Jesus had made, and it would have resonated with them. They would have like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Daniel's vision. I remember that. Here's what Daniel continues to say. To him, that is the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It seems like they should have been celebrating but they're enraged. They're too hard-hearted to hear. In their view, Stephen is attacking everything that they hold dear. And I would say these are the things that they love. These are the things that give them significance and power and authority and control and security. See, he's taking that away. He's saying, there is one Lord and you ain't it. I did think, we haven't talked at all about this, but but the apostles are the foundation of the church, which means these religious leaders are subject to the authority of the apostles. They are to be in the church in this era of history. But here's how they respond, verse uh, 57. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Our first introduction to him. Now, let's keep this in context. This is after the empty tomb. Hundreds, hundreds of witnesses to the risen Christ. They've heard about it. Apostolic leaders authenticated by signs and wonders. That's been going on. And a great many of the priests, Acts 6, 7, obedient to the faith, some of their own are stepping in. Despite all of that, they cried out, they stopped their ears, and they rushed at Stephen. All of that was, in a sense, self-protection. They, they felt like he was blaspheming, and so they're like, la, 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 because they didn't want it to, to get on them or in them. 
It looks more like mob violence than even what is given them in the Old Testament with regards to stoning. And then garments are laid at the feet of Saul. He's going to speak of that in Acts 22. And it's interesting, though he's young, he's mentioned as young here, he's a man of authority. This passage is really a passage of contrast. It kind of goes back and forth. So in sharp contrast to the hard-hearted stoners, Stephen is the epitome of tender-heartedness. Like, look at what he does. It's a little bit hard to imagine. 59, as they were stoning Stephen. I just, just think about that for a minute. Knocked upside the head with a rock. He calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then when he said this, he fell asleep. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Two requests, receive my spirit. He fully expects because he's placed his faith in Christ, he will be received eternally into the presence of God. So he's saying, receive my spirit. And then secondly, do not hold this sin against them. You know, it's just... It doesn't take long if you scroll social media to see how many people are more interested in their rights than anything else on earth. And yet he's more interested in them experiencing the redemption that he has than he is in keeping his life. Saul is mentioned a second time. We're told in chapter eight, verse one, Saul approved of his execution. I don't know if that was necessary or if Luke is just giving us a a commentary there. Saul is about to become a central figure in a lot of ways, but I did think as powerful and proud as Saul seems, And as this crowd seems, they are unwittingly serving the redemptive purposes of God. They're doing something that they think is serving their purposes. And yet they're doing what needs to be done to spread the word. Um, Borrowing an Old Testament phrase, what they meant for evil, God meant for something else something good. I'm referring to a phrase that Joseph said to his brothers three decades after they sold him into slavery. This is in Genesis 37, if you want to go back and read that. But I want you to hear these words that Joseph says to his brothers when they are uh, brought to him. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. All of that allowed him to, in a sense, be a type of Christ, a savior for his own family who would be the nation of Israel under Egypt. And then he says, as for you, in chapter 50, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So after we find out that Saul gave his approval, we find out there arose on that day after Stephen fell asleep a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. Does that ring a bell? What did Jesus say would happen when the Holy Spirit came upon his apostles? they would be his witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. A great persecution arose, scattered Christ followers exactly where God intended. Um, it does say the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Uh, there's lots of ideas about why that is. Um, Remember, I, I talked about the difference between uh, the Hebrew Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. So Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew, and so the persecution most likely was directed toward them because they were outsiders. Um, therefore, the apostles could remain in Jerusalem and be less uh, threatened than the Hellenistic Jews, but the Hellenistic Jews for sure leave town and the apostles are left. Interesting, far from ending Christianity, Stephen's martyrdom and the persecution that followed served to fuel its expansion. A church father, a guy named Tertullian, second century, said this, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. And that has played out for centuries where the pressure seems heaviest, the church seems to thrive. Well, the passage ends with a description of devotion. Verse two of chapter eight, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, third mention, was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So we get a few pictures of devotion. We have the apostles remaining in Jerusalem. They could have easily run. That's exactly what they did when Jesus was crucified, remember? But they stay. They're the leaders of the church. And I'm assuming their, their mindset is, if we have to, we're gonna go down with the church. This is our assignment. And then there are these devout men who bury Stephen and lament his death. And that would have been a very public kind of uh, expression. It wouldn't have been private. It, 
it would have been saying, so he is stoned for blasphemy. So you don't celebrate, potentially even bury, you certainly don't lament the lost life of a blasphemer. But they're saying, we disagree. We believe he was a man of God and we're gonna bury him properly. So they are risking a lot by doing that. We are left to wonder what, what will become of all of those who were scattered. Like, will they go to these other places wherever that might be and kind of fade into the background? So despite what we know today, if we, if we read this as if it's for the first time, we're probably on the edge of our seats saying, it's interesting, they went to Judea and Samaria. What will happen there? Here's what I know. What we're willing to die for determines what we will ultimately live for. Saul is ravaging the church. Remember Jesus' words? He said, they'll kill you and they'll believe they're doing a good deed for God. Saul is ravaging the church. And that word ravaging envisions wild beasts like lions and bears and leopards tearing at raw flesh. That's the picture. He is, perse he is persecution personified. And I thought the ironic thing here, and perhaps this is why Luke mentions this, the raging hunter will become the hunted, right? The Lord's gonna run him down <laughs> and get his attention, change his life, his eternity, and give him an assignment. And then he's gonna write these words in 1 Corinthians 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, the cross, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. I think Stephen was probably thinking similar thoughts as he lost his life. Probably the simplest phrase I can think of in our Bible to capture this idea, Paul wrote, Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you believe that? It's one of those things I think we would like to be true of us. But it's worth some serious reflection. Because we don't have anybody outside the doors at the moment that's coming after us. But if they were, what would you do? 
If there is a secret to the Christian life, it is this. Die to live. Die to live. As Kevin was asking us to talk about what the Lord is doing, I, I honestly, I felt great conviction because there were days years and years and years ago where that marked my life like it never had. And I honestly was convicted this week. I just feel soft. I feel complacent. I want this to be true. As, as true as it can possibly be of me until I take my last breath. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. You know, the Lord is kind. He disciplines those whom he loves. He is calling us to more. And it's not to more comfort and convenience, expedience, those things that we value so much. He calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily and follow him. For our so what, I want to ask you to, to read something with me and then I want you to just prayerfully ask the Lord to use his word like a surgeon's scalpel in your heart and to, to show you whatever it is you need to see today. You and I need to see something today. What is it that would keep us from the life that he wants for us in Christ? So read these words with me out of Galatians 2.20 and then uh, spend some time prayerfully reflecting on how they apply to your life. The screen is out. I'll be reading it to you. <laughs> They're familiar words. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Take a few moments and prayerfully ask the Lord to speak to you through his word.
Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. And uh, as we hear your word preached, as we hear about Stephen getting physically uh, pounded with rocks and losing his life and dying with such joy. And I love how the scriptures, uh, as Monty unpacked them this morning, said he fell asleep. It did not say he died because he closed his eyes and he woke up staring at the eyes of Christ, of you. Lord, give us that vision for death, as scary as it can be. Give us that vision. And Lord, it's obvious, it's obvious in my life, even as I rehearse my salvation story, it's so obvious that I come to Christ and maybe some of the big things we call wicked disappeared immediately, but there's been a 40 plus year fight that I have failed on many of occasions. I love myself more than I love you. And Lord, if we describe what you want to do in each of us, it is simply this. It is that you would, you are trying to do into us what Monty said this this morning, that is to deny ourselves and follow you. Our natural bent is to not deny ourselves and follow our own hearts and our own minds. And Lord, that's a journey. It's a process. But I pray this morning that your spirit would make us attune, as Monty said, to us and the ways that we love ourselves, which are antithetical to us loving you. Help us to be a church of people who is always looking to daily take up our crosses. It is a great prayer. And it would be kind and gracious and merciful if you would make that true of us. We ask that. We invite that. And everyone said, Amen.